how is building Lucy been different than building Soylent? The biggest way Lucy has been different than Soylent is 100% the regulatory situation. So when you build a food product, so for the listeners that might not know, Soylent is a uh, meal replacement shake. It's like a protein powder, protein shake, uh, something that you might see on the store shelves at GNC or a gas station, like a muscle milk, something like that. And when you build one of those products, it's actually very, very simple from a regulatory perspective. You don't need to call the FDA. The FDA doesn't need to approve your product before it goes to market. As long as you're using ingredients that are quote unquote generally recognized as safe or grass, you're fine. So think about it like when you walk into a grocery store, there's, you know, there's pre-made salads. Those salads might have some romaine lettuce, some cheese on them, some croutons. You don't need to get the combined salad approved. Everyone knows lettuce is fine, cheese is fine, croutons are fine, so you mix them together. Yes, you get a new product, it's a salad that's packaged at the grocery store, but it's not, there's nothing chemically changing. You can just add up the macro micronutrients, put a nutrition label on the back, and it's fine. And that's the way food products are regulated. That's the way Soylent was regulated and is, reg is regulated. Um, you can of course get crazy if you're lying and you put the wrong nutrition facts on the back or you're breaking the rules or you're putting something in there that isn't approved as safe. But in general, if you're using generally recognized as safe ingredients, you can just go to market, sell it, you're fine. Compare that to Ozempic or a cancer drug or insulin. These are drugs that are regulated by the FDA. Before they are sold to a single person, a human, there needs to be animal trials and human trials and double blind trials where you're giving it to patients and monitoring every detail about what the product does and the effect of that drug. Now, tobacco products and nicotine containing products like the ones we sell at Lucy, which include nicotine lozenges, nicotine gums, and nicotine pouches, uh, primarily focused to help people switch off of cigarettes and vapes. Um, those are our main competitors. Um, for a long time, the entire tobacco industry and nicotine market was regulated much like the food industry. It's now recently become regulated like the drug industry. So every product that goes to market needs to be approved by the FDA now. And that means you have to send in your ingredients. You have to run scientific tests on the product. You have to um, see how the market will receive it. Consumer testing, stability. There's so many different um, pieces to these applications. And so from day one, we were thinking about our regulatory applications and how we would test our products and make sure that they get approved by the FDA. So that's been the biggest thing for sure. How much did it even cost to first like launch it? What was the cost? So getting a product, a new nicotine containing product, like a new nicotine gum or new nicotine pouch to market can range in the millions to hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, very similar to biotech where bringing a new cancer drug to market can cost hundreds of millions of dollars in, in expenses uh, related to developing the product and testing it before the FDA approves it. Uh, not to get too wonky, but uh, there was a transition phase where the products were previously unregulated. Anyone could come to market with anything. That's where we saw the explosion of vapes. There were all sorts of different vapes, all sorts of different flavors and strengths. And you know anyone could just whip one up and start selling it. 
that that window of opportunity is closed. And so in 2016, actually, if you go back to 2008, uh, President Barack Obama passed some legislation that gave the FDA regulatory authority over nicotine-containing products. That changed the fundamental structure of how these products get approved. That went into effect in 2016. And then these regulatory applications were kind of pushed around and the FDA is still working through them. So you might have heard that Juul was recently denied their application. Um, Zinn has not been approved yet, but things are looking very good for that product. Um, And we're kind of in this um, where we've been... Some of our products have been accepted. Some of our products are still waiting. Fortunately, we have never been disapproved for anything. We're working very hard to work with the FDA, but... um, it costs a lot of money. It's very expensive. Um, it's good from a business perspective because it reduces competition in the long term, and it means that there will be fewer, bigger winners. Um, one thing that we found in the uh, nutrition and protein shape market was that there was always a new kid on the block and a new company that was um, growing very quickly with a new stunt or new marketing angle. And so the, the landscape was very, very competitive. Um, the nicotine market is much less fragmented. Hmm. Is it is it because it's so difficult to get a product to market? Does that make it so mostly your competition is just big companies, which yeah. kind of like are stale? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so Soylent and Lucy both have similar brand aesthetics. Uh, how do you think about designing a brand that really sticks in in consumers' minds? Yeah. When I think of branding. I think there are two things that you have to get right when you're building a brand. The first is it has to appeal ridiculously to a very small niche audience. So with Soylent, we were very, very fortunate in that um, we were these hacker kids in Silicon Valley building startups and writing software. That was who we spoke to. And so we built a brand that very naturally spoke to these aspirational entrepreneurs, software engineers. And so we had a lot of luck with that. It was, became a status symbol for a certain uh, type of person. And um, the the market was saturated with products like muscle milk that were very, uh, you know, masculine, testosterone driven, you know, high protein, very intense. And that was, those are great products, but they just speak to a very different audience and they hadn't, they weren't speaking to the, programmer who doesn't really care about food. And so we were able to build kind of an anti-brand. You see something similar happening with liquid death in the water category where all the water companies look exactly the same. It's just a beautiful picture of a mountain or a lake or a stream or an island in Fiji water's case. And then liquid death came out with something that feels exactly opposite and it spoke to a very niche community of like metal heads people who were now sober but wanted to drink something when they were out at a bar or a rock show and so it spoke to a very very small audience and then the so that's the first thing is like speak to a small audience but then the the second thing is like essentially crossing the chasm like you need to find a brand that can grow out of that and become appealing to to everyone so when i think about you know, Red Bull is known for marketing to the extreme sports enthusiast. Uh, they sponsor skydiving competitions and extreme sports and the X Games and all sorts of crazy, um, aggressive, you know, F1, all these, all these extreme sports. But now you don't need to be an extreme sports enthusiast to drink Red Bull. You can just be generally 
you know, think like skateboarding is cool and be into that. And I think that's, that's kind of the win condition is, um, you know, liquid death cannot be successful if you have to be in a metal band to drink it. But if you think that heavy metal is kind of cool and funny and whatever, it's nice, then that can be a much larger audience. So figuring out how to first break through all of the noise and start growing and then make the brand more broad over time while keeping some level of focus and differentiation while the market kind of um, coalesces around those ideas broadly. So um, Monster, another great example. I mean, energy drinks are fantastic at this. Like you look at Celsius, what they did with the CrossFit community. Um, Obviously now Celsius is not truly identified with like the gym crowded um but they because they were able to kind of break out beyond that yeah is it is it any different when you're marketing a nicotine product um no it's not if you're doing it as a startup or a small company um it is different if you're a big tobacco company that's launching a product because brand is much less important because you have billions of dollars coming in from your legacy cigarette products. Like some of these companies literally cash flow billions of dollars. Um, and so you can subsidize um, the, the cost and, and effectively wage and win a price war. And then also you have a massive distribution advantage from all the trucks that are dropping off your cigarettes at every corner store in America. There's, I think there's 100,000 stores in America that sell protein shakes. There's almost 300,000 that sell nicotine products and cigarettes. It's every, there's dedicated tobacconists where you can just go and get tobacco products. In every city, you'll see a vape shop. I've never seen an energy drink shop or a protein shake shop. Maybe GNC counts, but not really. Uh, certainly not in the way that there's a vape shop on so many corners. And so if you're a, if you're a big tobacco company, the branding issue is much less important. I think it does create some fragility and it does create some, some surface area for attack, but um, you really can't discount how valuable um, having a, dis- a, mono- a monopoly on physical retail distribution where 99% of tobacco products are sold. Um, these are This is not books. This is not TV. No one buys cigarettes on Amazon. You legally cannot. That's a, that's a federal law. You cannot buy cigarettes online. Has it just been at forever or well? ATF. I'm not exactly sure when, but, uh, you know, over a decade ago, like effectively they've never been sold effectively, like really online. Um, because cigarettes are very, they're, they're used for all sorts of like trafficking and, and mafia, like the old, uh, like the mafia would, if you steal a truck of cigarettes, that's one of the most, uh, valuable. If you're thinking of like fast and the furious or they're stealing like DVD players, um, stealing cigarettes is way, 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 way more valuable because uh, think about a pack of cigarettes can sell for $10 and think about how small it is. It's so small. So you're basically just stealing a pallet of cash. Yeah, exactly. And so the ATF has always been really, really, um, and there's just so many of these cigarettes flowing around the United States. Um, It's not exactly the same as like iPhones. Like people don't buy as many iPhones as they do cigarettes. So uh, anyway, it's it's very complicated, but... uh, yeah, the, the 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 larger brands they do take branding seriously. They do think about that, but um, it's much less important to for them to really have a brand that speaks to a specific niche because they can just put the product everywhere immediately on day one. Just makes it easier. I would actually be really curious. So I've heard that like 
Warren Buffett talks about consumers uh, having like a taste memory. Um, and certain, you know, for food, people do, uh, which means that you don't want to eat McDonald's every single day of the week. You eat it once and then you kind of get bored of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, a week later, you're okay with eating it again. Um, is that, and, and they don't have it for drinks. So you can just drink Coke all day and yeah. you just pick up another Coke and keep on drinking it. Um, how does that work with, uh, with nicotine like pouches and stuff? I mean, it's the, it's the most, it's the most loyal customer segment in any consumer product category by far. Um, like the, a, a Marlboro smoker will only smoke Marlboros for decades and decades and decades. Like it, they don't bounce around. Um, they only buy what they like um, for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, extremely high brand loyalty. Um, I think the old tobacco products have done you know, a remarkable job. I mean, this is these these tobacco product. They they built whole marketing agencies. Like, like people made fortunes on this stuff, and the Marlboro Man is still iconic. Like the Camel marketing campaigns are still iconic, and they they definitely speak to a certain aesthetic. And when I say Virginia Slims or Camel Crush or Newports or uh, Marlboro Red or Virginia Slims, like all of these are like wildly different, you, like a, 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 a certain individual pops into your mind for each one of those. And that's a testament to the strength of the brand. That's interesting. I, I didn't realize that. Um, okay. So you've done YC twice, yep. uh, first with Soylent and then with Lucy. And then yep. I know that you also did like a hacker house or something at the yeah. beginning that it merged, merged with YC. With YC. Yeah. It's okay. Complex, um, yeah. So what was the most impactful thing about YC to you? And uh, do you have any great stories from your experience? Uh, it's mostly just the competition, I think. It's a hyper-competitive environment with a bunch of other entrepreneurs who are on the exact same time scale. So everyone needs to show traction, present on stage at demo day, and then try and raise money in this like knockout, drag out, fist fight with every other company. And so, it's an incredibly effective forcing function. Like you'll be at a YC dinner and there'll be someone like Mark Zuckerberg sitting on stage telling you about how he built Facebook and you'll look over and there'll be some, you know, nerdy founder who's like writing code on his laptop because he thinks it's more important to build than listen to Zuckerberg talk, which is just like, you see that and you're like, wow, that guy's getting ahead of me right now. Like, um, and maybe it's just aesthetics and maybe it's not, maybe you should be paying attention or whatever, but it just speaks to kind of the, the level of competition. Um, everyone hears who's doing well in the batch. Everyone's, everyone learns very quickly. Um, you know, what, what, what hacks are working, what growth strategies are working, what product strategies are working, who's, who's effective at fundraising. And I think it just, it just puts everyone on, on, a, on a timetable to say, you know, like, what can you get done in essentially one quarter? Um, and that's just very, it's a really, really good forcing function when it can be very easy to say, oh, like, you know, when do I really need to start this company? When do I really need to launch it? When do I really need to raise money? Um, YC just puts you on a timetable. And then once you're through that, obviously you're, you're, you're in the, you're then on ideally on the venture timetable, which is like 12 to 18 months of runway. You got to work really hard. You got to get to the next round. You got to build a real business and everything kind of flows from there. But um, in terms of going from zero to one and really, like quitting your job, going full time, 
like really burning the ships behind you and and um, have it, starting to see entrepreneurship as the only option. Uh, it's a very good forcing function for that. So I actually just thought about something. Um, do you think that because you've got all of these things pushing you towards, like you've got envy, you've got, you know, you've also, you're also seeing all these people execute really well and mm -hmm. all this stuff. Um, do you think it makes the people that go through the program do things that they wouldn't do otherwise? Mm, sure. I mean, certainly work harder, work long weekends and nights and stuff, like just things that are like less socially acceptable um, where there's pressure against it. Um, but when you're in the YC community, you have a bunch of people that you look around and, and everyone's doing the same crazy stuff. So it's a lot more acceptable. Um, the other kind of broad benefit of YC is that it's kind of like a union for early stage entrepreneurs in that they've, they've kind of established rules of the road for like the baseline of founder friendliness in the venture community. And so if VCs act very poorly and try and screw over entrepreneurs at the early stage, they'll get banned from Demo Day, which can have an effect. There's also, you know, like if you screw over one YC founder, that news can spread within the YC community in, in a way that, you know, during the dot-com boom or previous, you know, venture cycles, um, it would be a lot hard, it would be a lot easier for a venture capitalist to get away with screwing over a founder. Now there are other factors like, you know, just being able to tweet about stuff or, you know, write a blog about something that, that acts as more of a forcing function. But I think YC was a pretty critical part of the story of rebalancing the power between founders and investors. Now, you could argue that in the latest bubble, the balance was too in favor of the founder. And perhaps some founders took advantage of that and raised too much money and did all sorts of stuff. But uh, overall, I think YC has been a really, really great forcing function and just great impact on the venture community and is an important institution that may, may it live for a thousand more years. Have you ever not taken money from someone because of a YC founder's recommendation? I'm trying to think like specifically, it's, it's hard to put like a pinpoint moment on like, we had a term sheet and we turned it down. It's usually just like, there's a little bit of less enthusiasm for taking an intro. Um, but I would say like, yes, I can think of one fund that specifically was notorious for like basically investing in American startups and then cloning the ideas internationally and seemed very predatory. And I think they reached out early and we might've had one meeting and then um, we kind of knew that they were sharky, but it was made even more clear. And so we declined to work with them. Um, but again, it's like, it's unclear that we would, it, we would have worked with them, but there are plenty of examples of that for sure. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think I might be thinking of the same person. Uh, did they clone Airbnb? I don't know. I, I actually don't, I don't remember the portfolio okay. at all. Okay. Um, so I have, this is a little bit of a strange question, but you are very consistently kind of like trying, at, from my perspective, you're trying to help humanity in sure. the products that you're creating. And so I wanted to ask kind of a invert question, which is imagine you're evil Coogan, hmm. which means that you have no ethical, no ethical holdups and your sole purpose is to make uh, 
the biggest company that you possibly can, what product would you create, and what tactics would you use to make it grow? It's a fun thought experiment. It's kind of hard because I think the, I think the market and capitalism and the American system is like, it's pretty good at allocating capital towards economically valuable and morally good things. There really aren't that many companies that are making a lot of money doing something very, very bad. You could argue the cigarette companies, obviously, like, um, but I definitely wouldn't start a cigarette company. That's insane because the, 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 the government regulators, the consumers have woken up to this and the media has woken up to the, the facts about cigarettes. And so starting a new company in that space would be terrible. Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems like the one, the once form of like fraud or immoral gain that's somewhat Lindy and never seems to go away is just kind of like get rich quick schemes. Um, that would probably be the easiest way. It wouldn't necessarily be a big company. It'd be very hard to build a, 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 a massive like, you know, empire around get rich quick schemes and courses. I do think, I do think there's probably some way to go deeper in the stack. Like I know there's some people that like, f- like the fake gurus who will teach a course on how to get rich. And it's like teaching you about drop shipping. And then the real, like, you know, the, like as we move towards the galaxy brain version of this, there's a, like the second level is like you teach people to go and teach a course on how to get rich. And so now we're like two layers deep. And then I think you could go probably three layers deep by like building a software company that helps people sell courses to help people get rich. So now you're like three layers of abstraction away from like getting rich quick. And then you could probably go even deeper into the stack. And then eventually you probably just wind up building like a, like a really great like you know, internet company or something like AWS is probably sitting at the bottom of the stack of all the get, get rich quick schemes. Um, and then you realize that there's, there's probably more economically valuable, um, activity that could happen on top of your technology platform. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's fun to think about. Yeah. I was, I, I mean, it's very, it's kind of difficult because you can't, there's very few, uh, you can't really scam people if you want to build a trillion dollar company, right? Like, that's yeah, I, I don't think like the trillion dollar, company is like on the table if you're doing something wildly immoral or illegal. But I mean, certainly making like, you know, tens of millions of dollars a month or year is like well within the it's world of crypto scams, yeah. OnlyFans. Um, there, are plenty of, there are plenty of categories that I would not touch uh, for ethical reasons that um, are legal and can provide um, significant economic rewards. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so this is a good one. Uh, you've worked with co-founders on all of your companies, uh-huh. if I'm correct. Yeah. Uh, what have you learned from those experiences, and do you have any insights on how to maintain a successful co-founder relationship? Yes. Um, my experience with co-founders has been good. It's been worth the dilution. It's great to have you know people that are super aligned from day one and working alongside you. I think there's a few things. One is that 
the the longer the relationship, like the lindiness of the relationship is super valuable. So my my main business partner, I went to preschool with him. We went to middle school and high school together. We went to college in the same town. We started we started three companies now together. And so there's just like, you know, we're, we're both married. We live in the same town. We have family, friends. So there's just all these different like social forcing functions to like not screw each other over. Whereas like, you know, if me and you started a company and you live in Alaska and I fuck you over, like, good luck, bro. Go back to Alaska. Like, talk shit in Alaska or something. <laughs> like, it's just not, it's just not, there's, uh, like, obviously, like, people don't think about it that way, but there is, like, a social pressure that's important. And and you just learn all the different ways to interact with someone over a very long time. So, so like, having a long long-standing relationship over a number of years, good, good friendship, good, just good relationship general is, is very valuable. Um, and then, but I, but I do think like the flip side of that is that it can be very difficult to build a company if you don't have a single decision maker at the top. And so I think it's very important to identify early, like who is the CEO and then empower the CEO to have the final decision on basically everything, even though there might be other co-founders. And then that's, that's valuable. Like the co-founder title is one thing, but uh, the CEO title is a completely different thing. And it becomes more and more important as the company gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so you don't want every decision turning into a committee vote. I think that really, really slows down progress. And so um, empowering whoever the CEO is to have the confidence to be able to move forward and make gutsy decisions, take risks. And, um, you know, the idea that just like the buck stops with them and they're responsible for the decisions that they make and they live with the consequences and just having the trust of the organization to say, yes, we are, we want a leader, not a bunch of leaders where the credit and blame can be reassigned and shuffled Distributed. Around. Yeah. And that's the problem with uh, so many dysfunctional organizations. So you started three companies with this person. I didn't realize that you knew them since uh, yeah. preschool. David. Uh, so you were, you like played video games in high school and like, I guess you're scuba diving. Yeah, we were actually dive. on rival Counter-Strike teams. <laughs> How'd that happen? I uh, just like, I think my team was a little bit better than his. <laughs> he was like the B team. No. Uh, uh, you heard it yeah, here first. It was, like, it was just like there were 10 guys and uh, and he was close with like five of them and I was close with like the other five more, a little bit more. And so we kind of naturally formed into two separate teams and then we'd scrimmage each other and play. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was good times. So, okay, I'm actually kind of curious. In alternate, let's say like in an alternate reality, is there a world where John Coogan decided like not to start companies and just play video games <laughs> like competitively? Um, I don't think so. I was never that good at video games. And I think I always knew that that would not be enough. I like the competition. I have a lot of respect for professional esports players. And, uh, but I don't think it would be enough. I, it's just not big enough of a problem for me to solve. I, 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 I think business poses like more interesting, long lasting um, problems. Um, but there's certainly something that's like extremely satisfying about just uh, like being a professional gamer and 
like trying to get to the top and grind and win and it's just competition it's great love it yeah how how do you decide like you know you started your first company and then my understanding is you just like tried a bunch of different things yeah. and it didn't really work yeah and then you went onto Soylent yeah because your friend like you know decided that yeah, he was we're basically running out of money because we tried a bunch of stuff and we, we we needed to extend our runway and so uh, making our own food was the cheapest way to get the sustenance you need to write more code essentially it was a great like story great great marketing PR story uh, for like launching that brand for sure what was what was the original like formula for Soylent I don't even, just I mean, some it's protein, just powder? protein, carbs, fats, micronutrients, like, you know, you need calcium, B vitamins, you need, like, just like, look at the back of any FDA nutrition label, we put 100% of everything they recommended in it. And that was like the unique differentiator, was that when you look at the back of any food product, you see a bunch of decisions that people have made. Like daily value things. Daily values, yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, if you if you look at the back of a muscle milk, you see like high protein, maybe low carbs, uh, maybe low fat, maybe some micronutrients that they've decided would be interesting actives and functional additives. But we just said like, let's just do 100%, um, which is silly and just like very entertaining and very differentiated. And that was like- It's a good marketing shtick too. Yeah, exactly, good marketing shtick. And and it was an interesting like value proposition and and thought experiment. Like if you drink this, can you live off of it? Forever, yeah. The FDA says you can. (laughs) the, the, The government literally says like, not only can you, but you will be perfectly healthy. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Which obviously, that can't be correct because everyone's different, but. Yeah, exactly. So it calls into all sorts of questions about, you know, di- like different diet restrictions for different people. Do we need customized nutrition? Um, there's a whole bunch of different stuff that goes into that. But uh, but it was a very interesting thought experiment. It made for great, uh, great press articles. For sure. Yeah. And then what was what was like the first, I imagine this is something that you would remember. What was yeah. the first press article where you saw that you know this thing was working oh People the, were, the original like launch blog post went like insanely viral. it went viral yeah on hacker news and then um because the ceo stopped eating food for a month and lived on this product exclusively for a month so it was the that ultimate sounds like a mr beast test. video actually yeah it does it was it was kind of proto youtube uh it yeah it's fascinating that it that, that now that's like you know the standard um kind of like how ryan trahan had that penny series yeah and that was based on another guy who did who did a penny trade are you familiar with this i yeah you know so for those that don't know ryan trahan like went across america and then also just went like flew back to america uh, yeah using just a penny he just starts with a penny, penny and then he trades that for a pen and then trades that for a bottle of water and then sells that for five dollars and then trades that for a bus ticket trades that for and he just trades all the way up to wherever and there's a, f- there's a famous story back in like like the 90s or early 2000s where a guy um, traded a penny for a house. And uh, and yeah, these, these kind of like viral in, in interesting formats, they just keep keep coming out. I mean, uh, Mike, was it Mike Rowe or you no, know, some, someone who did supersize me, did he oh, lived yeah. at McDonald's for 30 days or a yeah, year Yeah, and then he got just horribly and ill. He got really just sick. Uh, stress tests go way, way back. I mean, Ogilvy, uh, one of the m- marketing geniuses, um, 
was tasked with creating an ad campaign for a glue company. And glue is extremely, yeah, glued a car to the wall because glue is an extremely, he, I, I thought it was a car to a wall. I think it actually might be he glued someone's shoes to the ceiling and then had the, uh, had the, the, the actor tell you about the product and you can't look away because if the glue doesn't hold, he's going to fall and break his neck and and it's inherently high stakes. And so um, when, when Rob announced that he was going to be, or that he did stopped eating food and was going to live on this for 30 days straight, of course, everyone had to chime in with their two cents. You're going to die. This is evil. This is great. I want this. I'll pay you for this. And there were a lot of haters, but you know, for every 10 haters, there was one super fan. And so that converted into, I think the first month we went live, we sold like a million dollars of product in a month. And was it just, was it just like polarizing? I know that you guys uh, structured it so that, you know, soil and green. Yep. That was like not fully engineered. Like a lot of this stuff was just like getting lucky and going off of instinct and gut. Um, but yeah, I mean, the name was 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 a phenomenal choice for early growth because um, every time we'd post anything on Facebook, everyone in the comments would be like, you're an idiot. There's this movie that you've never heard of that is about cannibalism. Like, why would you do this? And it's like, obviously we know about it. We're making a joke, but people would still comment and then that would propel it to the top of every, like everything we'd post would go viral because people would be commenting. Um, and, you know, it was like, peak boomer Facebook era, like so many uncles on Facebook, like wanting to comment on everything. Um, and so, yeah, we were just like viral machines basically. So have you thought about how to make, I mean, I know it's much harder with a nicotine product cause you don't want to end yeah, up like Yeah, you don't Juul, want so. it to go super viral because if, if you go super viral, then like kids will start seeing it. So it's much more important to be like targeted with the advertising in the tobacco and nicotine industry. Um, so we, we deliberately like, like avoid You rein it in. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to, to reach adult smokers in interesting ways. And, and we've, we, we've, we've tried some of that. A lot of it's just like, you know, advertise on podcasts that kids obviously don't listen to, you know, like some sort of like, you know, Gen Xer political show <laughs> is not going to be listened to by a bunch of 17 year olds. And so we're not really at risk of kids using the product. Um, but that's the number one thing that we want to stay away from. Have you thought about how to, so I really love, I think probably my favorite product right now is eight sleep and yeah. they are so incredible at Great. getting they're basically establishing their brand as the thing that you have if you're someone like if you if you're you know a top performance athlete if you're the yep. elon musk ceo yep. dude that's changing the world you that. use an eight sleep right or you use an eight sleep right i don't track my sleep oh my god well i i probably should uh i've met mateo i i, I should reach out to him and 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 get one um I, I have no doubt that it's a great product. I just don't have any problem sleeping. Mm -hmm. And so I avoid finding solutions for problems that don't exist. Um, like if I'm not, if I'm not waking up in the middle of the night and I'm not sleepy during the day, I assume that I don't have a problem and then I don't need to mess around with it. Um, super interested in it though. Like I, I think that's the case for a lot of quantified self stuff. Honestly, I, I, it's great for certain people if they need it, but, um, for some things, if you're in tune with yourself, like 
you can ask yourself if you're hungry and then you can just go eat. That's Instead a rare having, like, a trait. Reminder. There's, that is very rare. Most people, yes, you are okay. unusual. Um, Odd, yeah, I don't know. In a good uh, way. Yeah, to each their own. It's like not needing Ozempic. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> He's got natural Ozempic. Um, yeah. yeah, but like, so focusing back on eight sleep, yeah. how, you know, they are establishing establishing themselves as this very premium, ultra premium yeah. brand. They've done a great job. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg incredible uses job. one. It's like incredible. And Elon, like that's and on Elon their product page, stuff. right? Yeah, yeah. So and like that is phenomenal. How, you know, you've got, you're going up against competitors that have way better distribution, yeah. they have way more dollars. Yeah. Um, have you thought about how to establish your brand with uh, Lucy yeah. as like the go-to thing, the premium yeah. thing? It's tricky. Like an aspirational. Um, yeah, it's hard to reverse engineer. Like obviously you can sponsor people and put your put your brand in a key place. Like an example for Eight Sleep would probably be, I think they sponsored an F1 car. And so obviously I think like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or I, I think Tim Cook went to F1. I don't know if he's talked to them, but uh, you know, it's not crazy to think that like influential people will be there. It's kind of like the very top of the funnel or the top of the, the, the start to a, uh, like a daisy chain that leads to endorsements from very influential people and then it becoming a trend. And so there are some things that you can do where you can buy it. Some of it can be um, just built very over, very slowly over time, like hand-to-hand -hand combat. I'm sure some of those eight sleep influencers um, just heard about the product randomly or heard about it from a friend. And eventually if a product's good, it will find its way. And so uh, it can be hard to force there are sponsorships and influence campaigns that you can run, but um, they're very hard to get right. They're very hard to structure properly. Yeah, I, I almost have this like uh, theory that people vastly undervalue. Uh, like, if you take Founders Podcast, yeah. right? That I think is an insanely valuable asset. Maybe worth like yeah. half a billion dollars or some ridiculous number. Maybe it's a billion. That. Maybe it's, it's more. Because uh, it's all about like even if he doesn't, you know, decide to create a VC fund or something, yeah. he might be able to raise like a billion dollars tomorrow or like two yeah. or more. Um, and so, where was I going with that? Anyway, uh, but if you think about him, he's he's broadcasting to the most valuable audience in the world, which are true. I mean, they're the most high leverage people in society, right? Yep. They're founders. They invent products that. Yep scale to millions or billions of people. Um, and you think about that and you say, okay, so he's taking this idea that eight sleep is really good and helps you improve performance or whatever. Yep. And then he's broadcasting it to the people that have a voice themselves, yep. right? And so that's just insanely high leverage totally. advertising channel. Yep. Um, anyway, but you're, you're kind of doing that too. Yeah, certainly trying to. You're trying, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a little bit different because Everyone needs to sleep, but not everyone uses nicotine. And um, we specifically want to reach, you know, smokers, people who vape. And that cuts across a very, like, our product is not dramatically more expensive than other products. It's actually cheaper than cigarettes in many ways in certain states, depending on the taxes. And so um, the mission of the company is a little bit different. It's not strictly... It's not this like performance enhancement for anyone that, and, and it's, it's like this high-end product. It's very, very different from Eight Sleep. Um, although obviously it's a phenomenal brand, 
love the company, but um, it's it's different because you know we're targeting like ten or twenty percent of America who okay. smokes and uses vapes. Yeah, we're not we're like we're not trying to like I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg uses nicotine. I think he probably doesn't. So I'm not trying to get him as a customer. You're not trying to convert people that aren't no. nicotine. I w- I am kind of curious. Like I know that cigarettes have these negative health effects, um, yeah. but I would imagine that using your product is very similar to drinking a cup of coffee. It is. That doesn't, I mean, if you, if you take away the negatives, there's, you know, lots and lots of people that drink coffee. Yeah. And I don't totally. really see a whole, re- like I see the reason if your lungs are dying, right. And it ages you, but I don't see a reason why you wouldn't add this to the potential like options. Like stack. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it has been added to the potential options. Like it's available in 300,000 stores in America. Like, like it could not be more available. Um, I think people are aware of it. And uh, I mean, to back to go back to the point of like, you know, does personalized nutrition or something like, like people have different work environments. They have different responses to stimulants. Um, There are some people that benefit from caffeine. There are some people that don't like using caffeine. And so, I don't think a one-size-fits-all approach is right for stimulants generally. But just for your branding, you're not trying to convert the unconverted. You're just trying to get the people that are killing themselves I to mean, not. Yeah, right as now, much. like I mean, we're talking about a trillion-dollar industry. Like, yeah, we, like you truly do not need to add anyone. It's like merely moving people around, and I mean, cigarettes kill 50% of people that use them. Like, they kill more people than COVID ever did every single year. It's like insane. Like the numbers are just like staggering. And so, like, there's just so much opportunity in the core market like you don't you don't need to think about that and then also like it's so much harder to sell someone who's not using nicotine than someone who's already smoking and their girlfriend is complaining about how much they smell and it's expensive and it's gross and then they've also heard about health stuff and there's like a bunch of different things going on it's so much easier to go after that customer and and convert them and like we see that as a win the FDA kind of sees it as a win they're like very cagey about it they won't fully admit it for some of our for some of our products they will but for some of our products they're waiting but i think with with like in in enough time they will they they will be proud to um they they will be celebrating everyone who quits smoking um i certainly hope that that's what happens at the fda i would hate for the fda to uh land in a place where they continue to incentivize smoking. Um, Which is a very strange thing. That would be a terrible decision. It's strange, but strange things happen all the time in the government. Um, There's all sorts of different interests and all sorts of different incentives. And so, you know, it would not be irrational to, if you're working at the FDA and you want to get a a job at a big tobacco company to improve the you know, performance of big tobacco. Like, just like at the end of the day, like these are human beings and human beings have all sorts of incentives. Um, Not everyone is like this perfectly rational scientist. So um, I, yeah, basically the market's huge and it's just super valuable to go after people who are already smoking. Um, Getting people who don't use nicotine to use nicotine is just like harder. It doesn't really achieve the mission. And it's not, it's just not very economically valuable. Interesting. Yeah. It's but, just a weird and the people that do use nicotine uh, regularly, they're like a very, I mean, very like high how value many times, customer. Like, you know, how much luck do you think, uh, you know, eight sleep has advertising to people who like 
live off the grid in a tent. You know, it's like, like they shouldn't go after those people. <laughs> but you know what? They should definitely go after Mark Zuckerberg because he probably has plenty of room in his house for a nice bed and he probably has power and he can definitely get, um, he can definitely, you know, afford it and wants the best, most comfortable, most optimized bed possible. Yeah, and he's also signaling and to millions of people or at least a few hundred thousand that like, this is what I use. It's it's kind of like, you know, people want or people look up to others, right? So if yeah. Elon says something, people yeah. listen, right? Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, maybe more after today, but um, yeah, ripping. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. What is your driving philosophy? I know it's kind of creating good things, but what what on top of that? Mm. Like what gets you up in the morning? I mean, like what, what motivates me is uh, like pursuit of information and like finding some sort of base reality, understanding how the world works, solving puzzles, learning, like that type of stuff. But that's all, that's all in service of like, like a broader goal of um, like the expansion of humanity, expansion of GDP, expansion of life expe expectancy, like all, all of those things that I think like kind of allow humanity to climb the cosmic scoreboard and just put more points on the board. I think more people, more more GDP, the better. Um, yeah, just gotta be, gotta be flourishing, gotta bring about prosperity and abundance. That's the main like overarching goal. Um, and there are a bunch of different ways to slice at that, but I mean like, like nicotine is interesting because it's one of those things that's misunderstood. And I and I really really enjoy learning about things that are that are misunderstood. Yeah. That's always that's always fun. Like focusing on anything that's non-consensus and controversial. It's always a fascinating area, and I can't believe it's been eight years and this is still so controversial and still so misunderstood. Yeah, it's like arbitraging what people think uh, versus what the reality is, like yeah. what actual reality is. Yeah, because eventually, if you're right, the world will catch up to you. And you'll be able to reap the benefit. And by that time, you know, you've got like a $10 billion company or something. Hopefully. Okay. Um, I, so I guess this kind of uh, leads right into it, but what is the purpose behind your YouTube channel? A bunch of different purposes. I think the first one was probably. I mean, there's a little bit of a narrative where it was like kind of bored during pandemic. It was a good way to kind of meet people online, create a magnet, like wouldn't have met you without this. And now we're having this interesting conversation. If I was, if I had just been playing video games all throughout the pandemic, probably wouldn't met you, wouldn't have had this nice conversation, right? So um, just in terms of like, I like meeting people and having conversations, mission accomplished. I think there's also something to the Feynman method, the Feynman technique, which is like learning by teaching. And once you teach something, you understand it better. And so I find that if I want to understand, you know, the, you know, the dynamics of, uh, you know, should we ban TikTok or not? Well, if I go and spend a day researching it, write a YouTube script and record it and edit a video, like I usually come away with a pretty solid thesis and I feel fairly confident talking about that topic much more so than if I just watched a different video on it and came away with like one thing that I was parroting. So developing like true new theories about the world um, 
the process of research and writing is super valuable there. And then there's obviously economic value. You meet a lot of people, I've hired people, I've made money through it. There, there, there's a bunch of different like, like values there, but um, oddly I didn't and still don't really think I'm optimizing for like ego and fame. I see, I see YouTube as kind of, or just like building a personal brand as like kind of a necessary evil to get what you want. It's like, I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this a lot, but I, I think it's I, I think it's extremely high leverage and it's very valuable, but um, it in and of itself is not the end goal for me. Yeah. I don't think that's true for a lot of YouTubers. I think a lot of YouTubers are like, this is the best job ever. I love this. I want to do this forever. I like just like making videos and then being famous. And that's cool and that's great. And that's like how that industry should actually work. Um, I'm kind of like a tourist in the space. But you are also a tourist that like really gives a shit. Like the yeah. quality on your videos is insane. It's yeah, really I, I, I really do enjoy the the process of of making them. And I, I think it, it, it's a fascinating world. It's just such a blank canvas, like anything from a one second video to a 10 hour video. I saw a, I saw a video in my feed yesterday that was a 12 hour analysis of Star Wars episode one. Did you see this pop up on yours? No, but I'm no. thinking of like a 40 hour count to 100,000 with Mr. Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that, that is crazy <laughs> impressive that that Jimmy did that. It's all, but like this was, this was 12 hours of a person analyzing a two hour movie. Like that's crazy. Every little piece of lore, every little factoid. And so it's just like, you can do anything. It can be a vlog, it can be POV, it can be, you know, a podcast, it can be, you know, animation, like it's just, it's just endless, which is just, it's just fun. It's just a cool problem to solve and like optimize. The other thing that I'm kind of fascinated by about what you've done. So when I first, you know, you first said that you would take the interview, uh, I popped on one of your videos yeah. and then I just went down the rabbit hole and for the next like probably 12 or 13 hours, I was just watching these videos on double, you know, speeds and I was like, oh my God, they are really good. Anyway. Um, do you think that you could quantify or have you thought about the value that you're creating? Because it's not only that you're creating these interesting videos, it's also that, you know, some person out there somewhere might see it and be kind of curious. Yeah, I mean, you can absolutely quantify the value. How much money did you make from it? Well, not even you. I'm saying about like yeah, your so, impact on others. So, I mean, like, if you're an economist, you would say like, okay, how much money do, do do the videos make in ad revenue? What's YouTube's cut? Okay, let's true that up so it's twice whatever you've made on the on the video in ad revenue. And then someone had to pay for that, so there was a surplus there, and then there was a consumer surplus for whatever product they bought. So it's probably like 5X to 10X whatever the ad revenue is, roughly, really? probably. I mean, if you if you believe in like you know somewhat efficient economic markets, I don't know. Like, it's just one way to slice it. You could also try and think about it like some other vague way. Someone gets inspired, they start a big company, mm -hmm. and create something. But like, how would we even pin that number down? You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. But it's it's kind of like with the founders podcast. You have no idea what the actual value of that yeah. podcast is, and like. I mean, Neuralink in everyone's brain. You measure the amount of dopamine or something. You put a dollar value on dopamine. Maybe you get there. I don't know. It's just like, it's kind of pointless. It's, it's not really helpful for your actual like decision making on what to go into. It's just like curiosity is what is driving 
a decision to make a video. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the cool I think the cool thing about it is just like it's, a, it's just an example of like scale on the internet. Like you can put out a video and it can get a million views, and that's like a million people. Like I think like my for my my breakdown of Xi Jinping, like two million people have watched that. It's like forty minutes long. Yeah. And so it's like that is not that's not like an arena show. Like that is like that's like more people than gather for like some of the biggest like protests in the world. It's, it's like crazy. Yeah, it's like, f- yeah, 40 arenas or something. I don't know. It's like a lot of people. And uh, and 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 th- that type of scale and impact was like, is only possible on the internet. And I do think it gets like kind of commoditized away because it's so easy just to look at like, oh, well, well, Mr. Beast pulls 100 million every video. So like, what's 2 million? Um, but if you, if you really like take a breather, you're like, wow, that's like, that that, that is like a, big thing and it's crazy that you could do that like just like in a few days of like writing and researching and then a few days of editing and then you put it up and like it happens just because the internet's there and that like truly was impossible like a hundred years ago and so it's kind of a it's kind of a cool you know it's a cool way to experience modernity have you thought at all about how to get more people to start companies i don't know that that's a problem Really? I mean, especially not during the bull market. Like in the bull run, like there are new companies started every single day. Um, how would we know? The way I think about it is there's lots of, lots of forces. And y- when you're growing up, 99% of the population does not grow up in a, in a home that's like, you should start a startup. That's a very rare thing. And so you have all these influences that are kind of influencing your psychology and decision-making on whether or not to go to college, whether or not to get a job, whatever. Um, and I'm kind of wondering if you could flip that where the default or create some, some way where you're influencing lots and lots of people to start companies instead of taking those traditional paths. Yeah. I mean, so... America still has the, by far, the strongest entrepreneurial culture in the world. It's not even close. Like all of the best businesses of the last two decades have been started here or China and you can kind of debate like how entrepreneurial that is. Um, but it's, it, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible country and we have a very strong entrepreneurial culture. Um, as you upregulate the amount of entrepreneurship, your potentially the average quality of the company goes down. Uh, potentially the amount of fraud increases. You get more Theranoses. Um, it's not. It's not clear that we need more companies. So fast forward thirty years, uh, what would you like to be known for? I don't really care. I'm, I don't want to be known for anything. I don't really, I don't even think about that. I don't even think about like wanting to be known for things. I don't think about legacy. Um, I, I want to know things. I want to, I want to know things. I want to have solved puzzles. I want to, I want to understand, uh, you know, exactly what happens when, that w- what leads to a president getting elected. I want to know how a company gets built. I want to know, I want to be able to foresee things before they happen. And I want to know um, why certain things happened in the past. And so I don't care if I'm known for something or not. 
the 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 way that I was actually trying to phrase that question was, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos is he's you know 1993 or whatever a year before regret. he starts Amazon, where he's look he's projecting himself forward and saying, what will I regret doing if I don't do it? That totally. was my that thing. Is like I love what. It's not that you'll necessarily be known for it, but like 30 years from now, you succeeded at whatever it is that you're trying to succeed at. What does that look like? Yeah. Um. Because that is a different question than like people knowing about you. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like super long-term goals, I'm an entrepreneur, I've been an entrepreneur for a decade, no plans to stop. So I want to continue being an entrepreneur for the next three decades. I hope that looks like founding a really big company. I hope that looks like running it for a very long time, building something very big and impactful and having a very loving family and tight-knit close group of friends. And that's pretty much it. Do you think that you're ever going to, you know, you wanted to be an astronaut. I assume that you'll be at the level of wealth where you can just take a trip on, you know, Starship or something, right? Uh, in probably like 10 or 15 years. But 10 or 15 years, I mean, you can go on the, the Bezos rocket like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but you want to have a fun time, you know, yeah. anyway, around the earth a few times. Uh, that seems very fun, honestly. Um, and it's what, 20 Apple Vision Pros? <laughs> something like that? Isn't it 100K? And the I, Apple Vision Pro is 4K? So. Yeah, I think he's trying to get down, like a trip to Mars at 500 grand. Oh, no, no. I'm not talking about Mars. I'm just going to space. But yeah, um, yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, exploring the stars is very, very important. And uh, it's, it's, it's very, very critical that, um, that we don't abandon it. I think there's a serious risk that um, people turn inwards and AI and VR create abundance and people don't go outside and they don't conquer the stars and um, people just sit and, you know, they enter the matrix essentially. Like I, I think there's a, you know, a non-zero chance that in the next like 30 or 40 years, like a high percentage of the human, of the human population is like essentially, um, st static. Yeah. They don't move around and they don't go anywhere. Now, Delian at Founders Fund has a theory about like speciation, how like the human human species will like fracture. I think that's a good take. Um, I think it's possible that we kind of divide into like the adventurers and the wire headers, I guess. And so there's a bunch of people that are, um, you know, living on Earth in like a, a matrix type of situation. But I do think that there will be some people that jack out and leave actually go explore and go explore yeah. and and the, the the question is like what is the critical mass that you need for that to work because like spacex is a big company their whole supply chain is a big company like the economy is integrated like like fundamentally like they they need everything from you know aluminum manufacturers to corporate credit cards and HR software to run that company effectively. It's not enough just to have a rocket. Like you need an economy to actually make um, the jump to the next planet. And so um, what does that look like? Is that a billion people? Could a billion people do it? Could 100 million people do it? Could 10 million people do it? Um, and so if we start losing people significantly either due to like population collapse, lack of reproduction, 
or people just dropping out of the 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 exploratory society and kind of living in that matrix world. Um, if you have too few, you just won't be able to actually make it happen. The problem that I see is like, if you can watch someone's brain react to stimuli, right? You can have an AI that's perfectly yep. create. Like I'm, I'm thinking, I was thinking in the car yesterday about, you know, having some Thing hooked up to your head, reading yep. to your brain waves, yep. and then literally creating a show yep. on the spot with perfect accuracy on exactly what you want to watch, curated to exactly what you want. You don't even need to create the show. You can just you can just stimulate the neurons that give you pleasure, and so you can just be endlessly and en endlessly pleasured essentially. And and this is the concept of wireheading. It's very popular in science fiction, and I and I do think it is um, somewhat of a risk. I don't think it's a, a, a doom scenario, but um, it is something to be careful about and be thoughtful about. Okay. Yeah, the people that are actually doing it won't care. So it'll just be no, the people they'll that be happy. They'll be happy. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, we need we need a, a sizable team. Yeah. It's unclear how big the team needs to be, but I don't think it's one. I don't, and I don't think it's ten. I think it's probably close to a billion people. Close to a billion to get us to Mars and and beyond. Like we it, like Mars is but the first stop. What would be the stop afterwards? I don't know. I saw some post about like Venus being like completely habitable and like you can just go <laughs> live there or something. I really have no idea, but I would imagine it's like Alpha Centauri and then like every other, uh, like uh, uh, the, the, what is it? The uh, there's some sort of like the habitable zone. Like we, we we want people everywhere. Like we want to expand and and have and have massive you know cities and worlds that you know like Avatar shit. Like we want all this. Like the, the, there's no reason to stop, expand always. Yeah, building massive space stations. I I love that idea. Yeah, um, yeah. Not not space stations. Like colonizing actual worlds. Like like going down from space. Like yes, and space stations, and also the moon, and also Venus, and also Mars, and also everywhere. You know, and yeah. Other uh, other solar systems, and then eventually other galaxies. Like, do you think that everywhere. this is all going to happen in your lifetime? It mathematically cannot. Right. Like, it, like just unless we break the speed of light and come up with like some sort of, you know, crazy time travel system, like wormhole or something like, no, we'll, we'll never make it to a, a, you know, a, a, you know, a solar system that's, you know, thousands, thousands of light years away, unless there's like radical, radical life extension, which is possible. Well, my, my thinking about life extension is like, you don't have to actually live forever. All you have to do is wait until you can live a year and a year and a day longer than yeah, you know it takes to the efficient actually, frontier. Yeah, and then, and then you and just then start, you start going. You're you're on the compounding cycle. Um, it seems possible. Then it's just really important that you don't get hit by a bus. I don't think we're too far off, but I don't. I'm not betting on that. Okay. So you've started multiple companies. Do you have any stories from starting those companies that you haven't told before that mm. are interesting? This is a great question. I love stories like this and surfacing new weird stories. I need to think of some weird ones that I haven't told. I always go to the ones that I've told before, but it would be fun to work out an interesting story. I, I, I have no idea if it's a good story. Um, 
let's just see. Um, when we did our branding for Soylent, we worked with this guy, Ryder Rips, who's a very, very interesting and controversial artist. Um, he's been like ostracized from the art world, but he's like in some ways like a, just an artistic genius. Um, he was recently sued by the Board Ape Yacht Club because he like kind of recontextual, he, he, he made all these crazy claims about the the project being you know like very controversial and maybe including like hate speech or something it was very very controversial um but uh when we found him he was doing web design consulting for like google and stuff and he was just making cool projects on the web like little interactive uh little interactive websites um taking advantage of new like web sockets and new web technology. He was like an artist hacker. And we saw some profile on him, maybe in like Vice or something. We we're like, this guy is cool. We got to work with this guy. So we call him up and we say, hey, we want to do a branding project. And he wants to do the, lo and we want him to do like a logo and some packaging design. And so we sign and everything. And, and, and uh, he, he had like a reputation as kind of like a, internet troll or like had a very funny sense of humor and we were kind of like oh yeah like we can like we can hang with this guy and so he came up with this whole like like brand design like for the logo and uh and we were like we thought it'd be really funny if the Soylent logo you know how like many beverage products have a some punctuation at the end mm -hmm. be like jolt and it'll have an exclamation mark or like you know so, or like so there'll be some like intense thing it'll be like a like a period or something um uh we we thought it'd be funny to put a dot 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 after it like the most ominous logo you could possibly have and so we, we were like kind of joking around not really serious that we wanted to do that just kind of joking around so we sent this like this like revision being like what do you think about this and he was just like no this is stupid uh and and i was like yeah actually it is but um it was a, it was a very funny it was a very funny time working with someone like that because uh he did he he was very very good at like kind of honing in all the crazy brand ideas we had like that um like there was a little bit like at the heart of the brand is a cannibalism joke. Like fundamentally, like you cannot get away from that. Like, like Soylent Green is people in the Charlton Heston movie. And we named the company as a reference to actually the book, but the movie as well. And so it was just like, it's like, it's like a silly joke. And so um, like, how do you, how do you actually wrangle that in? And he came up with something. I think he's the one that came up with this, but uh, he, he came up with the idea of putting the nutrition facts on the front of the package because every other brand puts it on the back and they kind of, and you have to flip it over and they kind of turn it around. And so the initial packaging design for the protein powder was just the logo and then the nutrition facts. And the nutrition facts became a design element yeah. of the actual packaging. And we put it on t-shirts and it was just like a really cool, really interesting concept that like you only get from working with like a interesting artist like that. Uh, very, very good at like connecting like weird dots. But yeah, I mean. Uh, and had that just done. not been done before by another brand? I don't think, certainly not in the way we'd done it. Maybe there was some reference. I mean, he's like a big art history guy, really strong artist. So I'm sure there was some sort of reference that he was aware of and pulled from. 
Um, but I don't know exactly what where that came from, but I, I certainly hadn't seen it. And it just looks so much different than every other protein shake where it's like, you know, a wave of chocolate liquid sm splashing up against like a jacked bro who's like clearly on gear. And it was just like a very different look. It was just black and white, like plain text, nutrition facts, logo with a box around it, like very simple. And uh, I think it looked cool, it was fun. And yeah, very, 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 very interesting. Interesting character writer. That's like, yeah, that's interesting. I have you been able to replicate that kind of thinking and creating something fundamentally new? You know, so you you even if it's on just the marketing the side, side for that, have you done any other things since hard. then? Certainly haven't struck lightning like like, like Soylent again. I've seen it happen, um, but that's not. I don't know if that's really my forte. I'm not. What would you say that you're like expert at? Uh, I mean, I'm good at a few things. Like I studied economics, so I understand the finance of the business. Like I, I can actually run the company, I, operations. I understand technology. I'm a programmer, so I can build websites and think about how we use tech. Uh, also, like I'm very clearly like from the YouTube. Like I understand like content and like a pace of content and how to tell stories. But that's very different than like coming up with like an iconic brand design. Yeah. Very different thing. I talked to someone about the brand design behind Warby Parker, and he told me that the thesis that Warby Parker used was the literary life. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, like that is phenomenal. Because as soon as you hear that, like the literary life, like a bookish person, like the someone who's like reading a book in a coffee shop or or has a little reading cozy reading nook in their house like everything from their website the colors that they use their their their, their uh, when they do activations and they do little pop-up shops like everything flows from that and it's very very clear and i never knew that i couldn't reverse engineer that really but once I heard the term literary life, everything was just like, oh my God, it makes so much sense. I understand how their whole brand guides. And finding those keywords where, like when I think about Ray-Ban or Oakley's or any other eyewear company per sol, they, they all have wildly different brands. And there was clearly a gap in the market at the time for the literary life. And it worked out very, very well. And so, um, nice. developing those is very, very difficult. It requires really being in tune with the culture, understanding how to, how to carve something out, where the actual like lines of the culture are drawn, where you get beyond. And then simultaneously, I, I alluded to this earlier, but, but building a brand that is simultaneously um, narrow enough that it speaks to an early adopter community, but then can become broad over time. So just like everyone, basically everyone thinks it would be awesome to be able to do a kickflip. I can't do a kickflip. Can you do a kickflip? No. But you like Red Bull. Like at least you'll watch some Red Bull marketing stuff and you might drink one. Like, you know, that's fine. And it's the same thing with Warby Parker. Like if you're, if you're in the market for glasses, like you're like, yeah, it would be good to like read a novel in a coffee shop. Like that sounds nice. Even if you're not like the type of person to actually go and do it, it is like somewhat aspirational. It, exactly. It's just, yeah. uh, they're, they're, they're basically, I, 
I read this book, uh, I think it's like This Is Marketing by Seth Godin or something. Sure. And he's like, he's got this tagline or whatever that's people like us do things like this. Yeah. Right? And it's it's so, so smart. You either can appeal to someone like who they want to be yeah. or who they actually see themselves as or, you know, desire to be, yeah. right? Um, and I think that's so smart if you're designing a glasses brand around basically saying, are you a reader kind of yeah. thing. And do you have that same thing with the Lucy? To some degree, we've experimented with, a, with it a bunch and it's evolved and it's never been fully dialed in. Is that, is that just harder to do because it's not, it's not as clear to me. Like I, this almost feels like a, it, it feels like a Mr. Beast challenge where you're, you're thinking to yourself, who is this customer, you know, and breaking down exactly <laughs> what, Mr. who is this person? I tried to decide what their target market was by looking <laughs> at their website. Yeah, I love that. Um, uh, yeah, it's just hard. It's really hard, especially in, uh, in the nicotine category. It is, it is extremely frustrating because like, like just walk through the thought process. Like you might want to say like, Hey, this is for smokers who, this is the new Marlboro man. Like you're quitting smoking. It's like the FDA comes in. Oh, you can't say quit smoking. Like that's off the table. And so like, you can't say smokers. You can't say that like, there's all these crazy regulations that wind up creating very anodyne brands. You, you can't say like no. you're trying, you well, can't say that stuff. Okay. We can for one of our products because our nicotine lozenges are approved for smoking cessation. So we can technically say if you are a smoker and you want to quit smoking, use our nicotine lozenges. Now for our nicotine gum, Nicorette is approved as a smoking cessation aid, but Lucy nicotine gum is not approved as a smoking cessation aid, at least not yet. And so we can't say quit smoking with Lucy nicotine gum. We can say Lucy nicotine gum tastes great and has four milligrams of nicotine and, you know, is a generally enjoyable product. Like we can say all these like vague, bland things about it. And so that winds up leading to like somewhat of a vague brand. I am kind of deferring though, because I do admit that like we could have been stronger earlier on uh, and, and taken more risk and been a little bit more aggressive with how the brand was developed and found that core niche audience, but there was a lot of risk associated with it. And there was a lot of what, what were the risks? The, the, the risk is like, okay, so let's say that like, you know, like, let's look at the market and see what's out there. Like Nicorette is, uh, you know, this medicine that's advertised on like, you know, like probably like Fox news or something, or like CNBC, you see some like mainstream TV yeah. something like that Ma mainstream older audience. Then Zinn is like this kind of it's the leading brand, but it's kind of unclear what it stands for. It seems like maybe like the frat bros like it and like, uh, but you know, it's not really clear exactly who likes it, but it's very popular now. So it's like, where's the gap in the market? You so, just have the social proof of everyone so, using it. Yeah. So. so let's say, okay, we're like, we are going to make the Red Bull of nicotine pouches and we're going to assume that Zinn is like coffee and we are going to be Red Bull. So we're going to go after extreme sports. We're going to sponsor Tony Hawk and X games and have people jump out of planes and stuff. It's like, okay, so you do that. And then oops, kids happen to like that stuff. And then the media frames you as someone who is advertising to kids because of course kids like skateboarding, even though like at this point, the average Tony Hawk player is probably like Gen X or like 40. Um, but you, you run into that issue. So you wind up needing to create a little bit more of a bland brand, but it's kind of a cop out. I don't know. It's it's a very it's a very tough scenario. Yeah, that, that seems like a really tough situation, and you have to you have to like 
design your brand. I mean, it's also kind of tough because you have to design your brand as like an old person, right? You don't want yep. you don't want to market to the younger audience, right? Yep. And so when people say, you know, this is me, when they see it on screen, yep. right? With Jewel, it was like people dancing and stuff. Yeah, you know, and so that was incredibly like, difficult. Be clear. The product is great. Let the product speak for itself. Be very, be be very, just clear in the messaging. Clear in the branding. Make it, make it less niche, and just more obvious to communicate the product. Like, what is this? Like, this is a nicotine gum. This is berry citrus flavor. It has two milligrams of nicotine in it. Product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Like. It's very straightforward. And so low level of confusion, it's hard to speak to people and grow like virally, but the people who try the product and like it. They stick with it. it. Yeah. They stick with it. And, 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 and the reviews like support that. Yeah. Okay, final question. Yeah. Uh, what is the hardest thing that you've ever had to overcome? I was just tweeting about this yesterday. Like, you know, during the beginning of 2022, the market sold off like really significantly. The uh, the venture market was was collapsing. The stock market was collapsing. You know, you were talking about Mark Zuckerberg bringing bringing Meta back. Uh, I think their stock dropped by like seventy percent or something. Like it was truly like the end of days. It felt so dark, and and I think people didn't really talk about it because you don't want to say like you're suffering online. You kind of just want to post through the pain or make jokes or whatever. Especially um, when you're well to do and people don't really. Yeah, all sorts of things. It's just like even if you're even if you're broke and you lose your job, you don't really want to go on Instagram and be like, "I just lost my job." Like this sucks. Like it's pretty rare that people do that, and um, people post like aspirational stuff. So, like we didn't really collectively live through it together, but I suspect that a lot of people were like very stressed during that time. I certainly was. It was a it was a big open question about like where the economy goes, like will the government be able to whip inflation? And then Q three came around and they and they kinda did it and the recovery started and um, things have been looking good ever since. They're incredible job numbers today. Markets way up and and things are, are looking up generally. Um, but I think for a lot of people it was a real crucible. And it certainly was for us at Lucy. Like so we had been running like kind of the venture capital backed model. We'd raised ten million dollars in venture capital in uh, December of twenty nineteen. We go into COVID, we're like what does this mean? This is very weird. But we already had some remote employees. And so making the shift to remote temporarily was not very difficult. Uh, sales didn't fall off because we were entirely an e-commerce brand. So it was fine. We started growing and we kind of realized that like everything was kind of fine. It was okay. -wise. So we kept growing, kept spending, kept like investing for growth. And we were like, okay, we're, the market's good. We're going to go out and raise more money. 2022 hits and I'm like, there is zero chance we're getting a round done. Like everyone is terrified. We have like three months of runway left or something, uh, we're already in a weird category where a lot of venture capitalists don't want to invest in this because it's controversial and they have opinions about addiction and nicotine that, you know, some of them are valid. It's up to them to make those decisions, but it's not like a hot category and certainly not as, as down the fairway as like enterprise SaaS or like AI. Like it's, it's, just, it's just like, it's a completely different category. They have to really get up to speed on all that we, we talked about regulatory for like five minutes 
now imagine like, you know, someone thinking about putting 10, 20 million dollars into a company. It's going to be like months of learning about how the MBA Lots of diligence. It's like a whole new thing. Yeah. So, so I was like, guys, this is not going to happen. Like, like anyone, anyone on this board who thinks we're going to raise money is delusional. We are not raising money. Like it's not going to happen. Um, we need to think of another option. So we completely pivoted the business to just being profitable. And so we cut all of our costs, fired a bunch of marketing agencies that were underperforming, cut our ad spend back, raised our prices. We laid some people off. We, you know, reduced uh, our, our executive comp, like by more than two thirds, like everything went like, you know, just the, the biggest hammer we could hit. And there were some smart people that were saying this at the time, like, uh, like YC put out a video, Dalton Caldwell put out a video kind of saying like, guys, like make a, make one cut really deep and then start building back. That's what Meta did. That's what Airbnb did. Yeah. There's a lot of companies that did that. And, and we were just like, let's be the first one. We're small, we're agile. Let's make the change. And then let's run this as a profitable business. And, and, and the, the hard part is that like, even after you say like, okay, we're, we're, we're cutting ad spend. It's like, well, you're still getting bills in the door from people that you ran ads with like two months ago. So you still have to pay those. You can't just be like, oh, we're not advertising anymore. It's like the ads have run, we now owe the money. And so uh, it, it took like three to six months to really turn the ship around, but then we got profitable and we were profitable all through 2023. And the business is in like a phenomenal, great place, place now. now. We've grown a ton, which has been amazing. And it also just kind of proved that like, it's just a widget's business and we can just like run it profitably, which is kind of cool. Uh, so I was, I was very excited by that. Um, how close did you guys get in 2022? Like, like, was there, was there a possibility that Lucy does, does not exist? I mean, yes, if we hadn't made the changes that we did. Um, yeah. I mean, we had like three months of runway, we would have been dead. I don't know how else to put it. It's like, um, you probably would have like limped along somehow or something, but it would have been, it would have been very, very rough. And at a certain point, it's like you need a certain amount of like liquidity and just cash in the bank account to run like a multi-million dollar business, just because there's going to be working capital that goes into places. Like you order some inventory, you sell it. Like there's it, like when you're a small company, there's accounts that are like moving around and swinging and all of a sudden you need to invest hundred K over here and you're going to get the money back in six months. And like, you need cash to run a, a, a large business that's doing like tens of millions of dollars of sales. Um, and so like you just, you just cannot run a $50 million business on a million dollars in the bank. Like it's just, it's unless you're like an agency, I guess, or something, but, um, in general, like if you have, if you're a widgets business, you have a good, um, it's, it's very, very difficult. So, um, managing that was very, very, very important. And, um, it was cool coming out of it. We had a really, it was a really great experience because like, I'd run like the VC backed burning company, but I'd never, I'd actually never run a profitable business before, which is kind of crazy for a decade in entrepreneurship. Like, so that eventually did get profitable and stuff at various points, but like I wasn't running it. This was like the first company where I was like, it was like, okay, we're far enough along. We've like grown this business. We've, we, we have customers like, like we're flipping the switch and now like we're running this like 
you know, a business. Is it more fun to run a profitable business than one that's losing money, even if it's growing really fast? Uh, I don't know if fun is even a KPI I'd be worried about. Uh, It's somewhat less stressful because you have more leverage, right? So there's no one that can come in and say like, you need to take this deal. Hmm. You need to sell me this business. You need to let me join the board. You need to, uh, you know, pay me to promote your thing. Or you need to, you know, no one can shake you down because like you're not on a clock. So default live, very good. Um, these these theories are are great, but yeah, I think that's probably in recent memory the hardest moment, but a great crucible and very fun to be on the other side. Yeah, that's exciting. Okay, well, thank you, John. Uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me.